There's a couple more questions that saints have added, so we can we have time tonight. We can answer those first before we continue with the uh, the next outline. They're good questions. They're worth spending a few minutes on. <clears throat> Sometimes when I fellowship with my prayer companion, particularly for ones that we both take care of, I open up specific things about the new one that I feel quite burdened to pray about so that we are on the same page and can pray specific prayers. For example, things hindering her baptism, her response to the ministry or meetings, etc. Is this gossip? When does fellowship become gossip? What makes gossip gossip? (laughs) I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that, but I will give a little response. Um, Okay, the first matter is prayer. We had a very, very, very enlightening testimony in the last meeting. I hope you caught it. Sister said it's, really good in our prayer to pray the Word of God. And we talked about this yesterday as well. What's real prayer? What, what's, the, what's the actual meaning of prayer? And I, and I really think we might not have the right concept here, which is why I'm going to give a general answer before I give a specific one. The first thing, prayer, the first purpose of prayer is to breathe in God. If we don't breathe in God, that's not prayer. We need to contact God in our prayer. The primary purpose of prayer is not to enumerate the things that we want God to do. Okay, let me give you a resource. and I, I, We could spend the whole night on this, so I won't. But let me tell you where you can find the best presentation on prayer. It's a book that has a very long title, How to Enjoy God and How to Practice the Enjoyment of God. Well, can you believe we have a book that has that title? I mean, you can't find that anywhere. We have a book called How to Enjoy God and How to Practice the Enjoyment of God. It's like, that should be required reading for every Christian. You shouldn't even be allowed to be a Christian if you don't read that book. And chapter 5 of that book is How to Enjoy God in Prayer. And there are 10 points there. And I just, very briefly, I'm going to share it with you, but read, read that chapter, please. You know, there's two main aspects of prayer, and they're typified by the two altars in the tabernacle. We've got three sections of the tabernacle and there's two altars. There's the bronze altar and there's the incense altar. Those signify the two main aspects of prayer. The first aspect of prayer is the prayer at the bronze altar for purposes of this meeting. Let's call this 
the prayer of fellowship. The prayer of fellowship. That's the prayer where we breathe in God to meet all of our needs. This is the prayer where we apply the blood to to cause us to enter into the fellowship with the Lord. Then this is the prayer of intercession. Now, between these two altars, there's a few other things. There's a laver, there's a, a table, there's a lampstand. Okay. <clears throat> what this question is asking about is which prayer? It's asking about the prayer of intercession, praying for people. But let me tell you, the prayer of intercession is not where you start. Prayer... <laughs> This is like a road map. You cannot jump from the outer court all the way into the Holy of Holies. It's too far. Nobody is that good of a jumper. Um, and you can't skip all those steps. There's a lot of steps. And you know what the purpose of these steps are before you even get to the incense altar? To mingle you with God. So that by the time you get to the incense altar, your prayer and his prayer are one prayer. Okay, very, very, very briefly, I'll tell you the steps, if I can remember them all. The first step, appear before God. Based on Psalm 42, appear before God. In other words, if I'm going to pray, there's something I need to do before I do anything else. I need to come to a person. I don't need to talk about the new one and all of their needs and what we need to cover. No, no. That's not prayer. We come to Him. The second point, we are silent. We calm down our inward being. I'll give you a verse. Psalm 131, verse 2 It says, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's the second step of prayer. Calm down your entire inner being. I know it's a real exercise, but this kind of talk does not calm down your inward being. It stirs up your inward being. Calm down your entire inward being. Then, behold the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 5. Behold Him. We're coming to a person. We're coming to a living person. Behold Him. Then, inquire. Also, Psalm 27, verse 5. One thing I have desired of the Lord... That will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This inquiring is not to ask him to do a whole bunch of things for our new one. No, no, no. This inquiring is to ask him, what is on your heart? I'm coming to you as a living person. Lord, what is in your heart concerning this person that I am burdened for? What do you see? 
you know, the person you need to talk to about this is not your prayer companion. The person you need to talk to about this is the Lord. Lord, what is in your heart concerning this person? What does she need? Then, is it time to intercede? No, no, no. We got many more steps. Then, then we need to wait on the Lord. We have just asked him a question. Lord, what is in your heart concerning me? What is in your heart concerning this person? What is your burden? What is your view? Don't be quick. Now wait on the Lord. And while I'm waiting on the Lord, what should I do? I should muse. That's the next point. Muse. If you read Psalm 119, verse 15, it talks about musing. It says... Um, I will muse upon your precepts. I love what the sister shared about pray reading. Oh, that really watered me. Real pray reading is musing. That's what the footnote says. Read it. It says to muse is to consider and to reconsider and to talk to yourself and to it's not it's not silent meditation it's verbalizing while you are considering the word of god you're right you can do that for 30 minutes with one verse easily to quote quote pray read a verse you can do that in a few seconds but to muse over the word of god you oh you and a half hour might not be enough Then after we muse, we worship the Lord. We're coming to a person. We are interacting with a person. We don't start off with our list. Here, Lord, here's what I need you to do for me. Get busy. I got a whole bunch of stuff you need to accomplish right now for my friend. (laughs) No, we're, we're contacting this person. Now we worship him, we praise him. Anyway, the last step of the ten is we intercede. Now this has a picture. The picture is in in Genesis 18. Abraham's intercession for Lot. Abraham did not begin his contact with the Lord by interceding for Lot, did he? In fact, Abraham had no intention to intercede for Lot. He didn't even know he needed to intercede for Lot. Abraham entertained the triune God. He ate with him. He fellowshiped with him. He spent the whole day with him. And then when the Lord was going to leave, he said, I'm coming with you. Let me walk out with you. And it was then Jehovah said, how can I hide what's in my heart from Abraham, my friend? See, if he had not had that time of fellowship, if he had not had that time of mingling, he never would have known what was on the Lord's heart. So then they have this discussion about Sodom. And you know the rest of the story. Then then Abraham intercedes for Lot. And his intercession for Lot, listen, 
It's a hundred percent according to God's desire and heart. It was not Abraham's natural affection for his nephew that caused him to pray for Lot. It was God's revelation. Can you see this? So don't be so quick to intercede. You know, even in the church prayer meeting, and again, I'm not touching anything here of the practice of the church, and I wouldn't, but in principle, even in the church prayer meeting, don't be in such a hurry to pray for things. We need to contact the person that we are coming to. We need to interact with him. We need to fellowship with him. We need to mingle with him. And I find that a better way to do that is not to start with prayer items. I was fellowshipping with Brother Paul the other day, and he mentioned this. Why not begin the prayer by praying what the Lord has released in the ministry? Oh, Lord, thank you. You are the place. You, yourself, are the place that I can come to meet with God. You, yourself, are the place where God can speak to me. Muse on that for a little while. Before we jump into the list, let's jump into the triune God. Let's jump into the Spirit. Let's jump into the Lord's heart. Okay, so now we give a specific answer to the question. That kind of fellowship can easily become gossip. We really don't need to know many details at all to pray for somebody. In other words, if I'm going to pray for this sister, and there are things that are hindering her baptism. I think what you're getting hung up on here is this this phrase, specific prayers. I find no verse in the entire Bible that talks about specific prayers. Um, I think that's a concept. Now, I'm not saying that our prayers should not be specific uh, and that all of our prayers should be general. I'm not saying that. But I am saying... Before you pray specific prayers, follow the steps. Follow the steps of the, of the pattern of prayer. Not, you know, those ten points, they're not a, they're not steps. They're not a how-to. But they're a real, real good pattern. Which is, let's mingle with the Lord in our prayer. And then pray. And then pray. Um, just to talk about other people's problems, it's extremely dangerous. I don't want to know your problems in that kind of way. All you need to tell me is, Mark, Ray's really suffering right now. We need to pray for him. That's really all I need to know. Because you know what? I'm not going to pray that the Lord will relieve his suffering. And I'm not going to pray that he will suffer no longer, and that whatever it is that's causing his suffering will go away. I'm not going to pray that. I'm going to pray, Lord, bountifully supply my brother to live you, to magnify you, to experience you, and to gain you for the body of Christ while he is passing through this God-arranged environment. 
How much do I need to know to pray that? Very little. I, actually, all I need to know is he has a need. I don't actually know what his need is. Even after you tell me I don't know what his need is, because you don't know. You just know what you know about his situation. That isn't it. His real need is God. His real need is Christ. His real need is the Spirit. Let's pray a higher prayer. And how can we pray that higher prayer? Mingle, mingle with the Lord. Fellowship with the Lord. Before you intercede, fellowship. Paul says, I exhort, therefore, first of all, that prayers, petitions, intercessions be made on behalf of all men. Intercessions are the end. Prayers are the beginning. The prayers are to contact God. Then we can intercede. Okay, this is, this is very much related. We have a prayer list with lots of names. That's good. Names are good. I don't really know each one of them, but just keep on mentioning them one by one. But since I do not know them all, the burden for prayers is not much. What can I do? Well, to mention people's names before the Lord is a big thing. You may consider it a small thing. It's not. How many times does Paul say in the epistle, in the epistles, making mention of you in our prayers? He doesn't say, I talked all about your situation with Titus, every last detail, and then we prayed specific prayers about your, your, your real problems. No. He said, making mention of you in our prayers. O Lord, remember Toby. It's a great prayer. I pray that a lot. You know who prayed that kind of prayer? Nehemiah. Remember. Remember. Actually, it's not the Lord who needs to remember. It's me. (laughs) But I tell him to remember. Lord, remember so-and-so. Remember Phoebe. Remember this one. Remember that one. Actually, that's great prayer. Maybe that's how Paul knew 30 names in Romans chapter 16. Maybe he mentioned all 30 of those names to God before he ever wrote the epistle to Romans. And the picture of that is the high priest. When he enters into the Holy of Holies, you know what he brings there? Names. Names. Names on his breast. Names on his shoulders. And according to the book of Isaiah, names on the palms of his hands. The hymn written by Charles Wesley says, My name is written on his hands. Sorry, Charles, it's not accurate. The book of Isaiah does not say that my name is written on his hands. It says that my name is engraved on his hands. So when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to the Father, right on this hand, I hope it's on his right hand, 
Maybe on his right hand it says, Mark. (laughs) Now I'm like James and John. I want to be on the right hand. Put Ray on the left. Put me on the right. No, I really mean it. He brings the names. And by bringing the names, you know, all 12 tribes are written on his heart and on his shoulders. By bringing the names into the Holy of Holies, he's bringing those people to God. You know, you don't need a lot of words. The Lord actually doesn't need a big explanation of what Ray's problem is. He knows it way, way, way better than you. If you want to pray for Ray, just say, Oh, Lord, Ray. Oh, Lord, our brother. Oh, Lord, Paul. Oh, Lord, Jesus. That's way better than a a big message on the shortcomings. (laughs) Of the brothers. (laughs) That's... Let's go on, shall we? (laughs) Does this help a little bit? There's a big, big learning here. Sisters, there's a huge learning here. That book I mentioned, I'm not being dramatic here, that book changed my prayer. That chapter of how to enjoy God, it changed the way I pray. I've been really practicing. Spend more time. Slow down and really contact the person. How do we practically set our minds on the things that are above? Well, all the things which are above are invisible. That's always hard. Uh, We can't see any of them. Uh, And yet, we're supposed to set our mind on them since it asks for the practical way, I I would say, I mean, there's no one answer to this, but where can we find the things which are above? We can find them in our mingled spirit, and we can find them in the Word of God. And in my experience, I can't really set my mind on the things above just by praying. Sometimes I can. Sometimes just by praying in my mingled spirit, I can do it. But more often, I really need the Word of God to remind me what are those things above. So I come right back to where we were. We need to muse. Muse on the things which are above. How do I do that? They're all in, they're all in the book of Colossians. Hey, you were in the book of Colossians. You were setting your mind on the things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, where Christ, our life, is hidden. Yeah, that's the things above. Do that. Muse on the book of Colossians like she did. Then you'll spend a half an hour per verse. And then you're, you'll be totally, your mind will be so in the things above, you'll be, you'll be immersed. That's really, that really is the way. Is it wrong to say to the young people that they can find someone to marry outside the church, a believer? Is it wrong to say to the young people that they 
can find someone to marry outside the church, a believer. If so, is this not exclusiveness? I'm not sure I understand that question. If you said it was okay, that's not exclusive, is it? Yeah, if you couldn't, if you said you couldn't, that that could be considered exclusiveness. I think that's actually probably what that that question is really saying. It's probably saying, if we tell someone, if we were to, if we were to tell a young person not to marry someone who's outside of the church, even if that person is a believer, would we be exclusive? Well, this is a real easy question. Don't tell anyone who to marry. (laughs) I'm dead serious. Who put you in charge of who should marry who? You really know? I don't. Sometimes the young people ask me, who should I marry? I say, are you kidding me? I have absolutely no idea. It was hard enough for me to figure out who I'm supposed to marry. And and why would God give me the leading who you should marry? That's ridiculous. He won't. Now, I am not saying that we should not be burdened for the marriages of the young people and that we should not care for that and that we should not pray for that and that we should not fellowship about it. I'm saying it's not your place to tell them who to marry or not to marry. Are you their mother? If anybody can tell them, it's it's their mother, not you. And probably their mother shouldn't. It's their marriage. So don't tell people who to marry. And should a person in the church marry a believer who's not in the church? It happens all the time. So if it is wrong, we got a whole bunch of people who are wrong. So... And you ask me, my answer is, I don't know. I didn't do it. I married someone in the church. I'm happy. I'm glad I did. The ones I've seen who married people outside the church, their life's pretty complicated, but who am I to say? Sometimes that's how people come into the church. I know a lot of cases. One one sister in my locality, she met a person on her job. Humanly speaking, he was a perfect match for her. She was a church kid. He was an atheist. (laughs) So, she asked me, should I marry him? I said, don't ask me. That's way, way, way out of my range. I said, we better pray for him. And we did. We really prayed for him because it was obvious she loved him, he loved her. And it was obvious they were a very good match humanly. So, one Saturday, I baptized him. A week later, I did their wedding. I told him, I buried you one Saturday and married you the next. And you know what? Turns out, he really loves the Lord. Amen. He's in the church life. Hallelujah. 
He really loves our sister. So who am I to say? Amen. I don't know. I don't know anymore. If you'd have asked me that question a long time ago, I would have had a lot to say. Now I just don't know. Because now I've seen many things that are totally against my thought. So, I don't know. Okay, let's go on, shall we? Let's go on to talk about the life that's useful to God for His purpose. Um, oh, I liked, I liked those testimonies last meeting. One of the sisters said, everything in the world teaches you to be independent. Isn't that true? It's like, the more you can be independent, the, the more it, you're uplifted. I don't need anybody. Nobody. I don't need God. I don't need you. I need nobody. I'm, I'm self-existing and ever-existing. I am that I am. It's terrible. It's awful. And the media not only presents it in a positive light. No, it glorifies it. It's like the movie stars in America now, the female ones, they say, I don't even need a man. I don't need a husband. I don't need a man. I can have a baby without a man. I'll just go to the clinic. Then I'll have the baby without the man, and I'll raise the baby without a man. And then they say, oh, isn't that great? Yeah, how would you like to be that kid? How would you like to be that kid who doesn't even know he has a father? And grows up and lives his whole life without a father. But that's not presented simply as an alternative. It's glorified. It's presented as an ideal. Uh, a world without men. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Yeah, probably would be. But unfortunate, unfortunately, you still need us. We're good for something. But that, that thought of independence, it's satanic. Whether it's a, in a male or a female, it's a satanic thought. God did not create, it, create us to be independent. You can't live the Christian life independently. You can't leave, live the church life independently. You can't really even live the human life independently. So everything about that is wrong. And yet, that's what's held up as the goal. I will be independent. Well, God has a different view. His view is, you will be dependent. And the more the dependent, the better. That's his, that's his ideal. Okay, so now we're going to continue what we read in Exodus and, and, and develop it a little more concerning... Moses and the female life that helped bring forth the male life to fulfill God's purpose. Let's start by reminding ourselves what God's purpose is. God's intention is to have his people build his dwelling place on earth and to be formed into an army to fight for God's interests on earth. So when we talk about being useful to God, there's only one way to be useful to God, because God only has one goal and one intention. To be useful to God is related to building up his dwelling place and 
fighting for his interests on the earth. So when we say that the female life is a life useful to God, and when we say that the male life is the life created to fulfill God's purpose, that's what we're talking about. The building up of his dwelling place and fighting for his interests on earth. The life useful to God in these matters is the female life, the life which is dependent on God. Now we introduce a new thought. This is directly related to the heading up of all things in Christ. You know, God's goal, according to Ephesians 1.10, and Ephesians 1.10 is a very, very important verse. The revelation in Ephesians 1.10 is only in that one verse in the Bible. So Ephesians 1.10 is a crucial verse. That's the verse that tells us God wants to head up all things in Christ. It's a little window. It's a little window. And it says that will happen in the fullness of the times, meaning at the end of all the ages of time. It'll be in the time of the New Jerusalem that all things will be headed up in Christ. That's the dispensation of the fullness of the times. This reveals something to us that through the rebellion of Satan, the entire universe, the the order in the universe, the headship in the universe got damaged. What was the headship before the rebellion of Satan? God was the head on the throne. Satan, who was Lucifer, was under God and over many of the angels. Lucifer had a very high position. He did not have the headship. Then Lucifer wanted the headship. He said, hey, I should be on the throne, not God. I will ascend to the throne. I will dethrone God. You know, the word in the Greek word in Ephesians 1.10, if you research it, that word to head up, it means to recover from an attack on your head or a blow to your head. That's what Satan did. He attacked the headship in the universe. And he said, I'm going to be head. Well, God, of course, he can squash Satan like an ant. He can stop that rebellion very, very, very easily. But he doesn't. Because God in his economy operates according to his own laws and his own principles. And one of his own laws is he will not directly deal with a rebellious creature. The only way he will deal with Satan is through another created being, which is man. So God needs to head up all things, listen, through the church. You know that the church is going to restore the universal headship? 
The church is going to reverse this upside-down situation related to the matter of headship. The way it's going to happen is the church is going to take Christ as the head. The world takes Satan as the head. The world is the cosmos. It's the satanic kingdom. Satan is the head of that kingdom. We know, you and I know, that he is an illegal usurper. We know that. But, and God knows it too. But God's way that he wants to deal with Satan is he wants to do it through the church. That the multifarious wisdom that now to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies might be made known through the church the multifarious wisdom of God. That's God's way to deal with the rulers and the authorities who have illegally assumed the position of headship. Now you can see something. Every attack on the order in the church, every attack on the headship, every attack on the proper place of male and female has its source in Satan's rebellion and attack on God's headship. That's where all of it comes from. Because God has his view of the order of the universe. He's the one who said it. He's the one who created it. He knows how it's supposed to be. And Satan also knows how it's supposed to be. Satan upset that order, and he's still trying to do it. I think we've covered that adequately yesterday and today. He's still attacking that proper order. Christ is the unique male in the universe. He's also the unique husband. He is the only head, and only he has an independent life. Amen. As females, the married sisters should not usurp the headship of their husbands, nor should they live in an independent way. With respect to the Lord, the married brothers also should not usurp the headship of Christ. You know, for man to be the proper head of the female, there's a requirement. The man needs to be headed up by Christ. But be careful, don't say, in my expert opinion, my husband is not headed up by Christ, therefore I do not need to be headed up by him. It doesn't work that way. Even if he breaks the principle, you can't. You can't. None of us can break the principle. With respect to the Lord, the married brothers also should not usurp his headship or live independently from him. In God's economy, there is a universal headship, or you could say a universal order. We don't use the word hierarchy. There is no hierarchy in God's economy, but it's not chaos either. There's an order, and it's an organic order established by God himself the head of Christ. Christ has a head. The head of Christ 
is God. Christ, under the headship of God, is the head of every man. You say, well, my husband's an unbeliever. Christ is still his head, whether he knows it or not. Christ is the head of every man. That's God's order. God established that. Man, under the headship of Christ, is the head of the woman. How about this? The four Gospels reveal that Christ was always under the headship of God. Wow. I don't know how you felt in the last meeting, but I was really amazed that the real female life is the life of Jesus. He lived the most dependent life anyone has ever lived on the earth. He lived under the headship. Anytime you live in God's order, you're blessed. Anytime you rebel against God's order, don't blame anyone else. Don't say, well, it's, you know, it, it, it's my husband's fault. If he had just remained in the order, I would have remained in the order. It doesn't work with God. Anytime we, as a believer, upset the God-ordained order, that's rebellion. It's leprosy. Of all the sins, the one Toby was, oh man, Toby told us, if you really want to know what leprosy is, fellowship with Toby. He will tell you because he's seen it. Oh my goodness, it was scary. The way he described it to us. I've never seen a leper, but he has. And that's the disease that signifies rebellion. It's really a serious thing to rebel. Um, in the church, but it's even any any of this order established by God. If we if we go against it, we let me just tell you, if you go against it, you're fighting against God. That's that's a that's a losing battle. Man typifying Christ signifies the independent life. Women typifying man signifies the dependent life. Every man should not be a male, but a female. Quote, 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 quote. I'm not saying men should be women and women should be men. That's what the world says. Now we understand the biblical thought. We should be a, quote, female, one who lives a life of dependence on God. Only such a female life could be useful to God. Man's independence of God is rebellion. But look at Eve. Her independence of Adam was her independence of God. Those were not two things. They were one thing. If a woman lives an independent life, she becomes a real male. Today, a great many women have become males. They have. And I have to tell you, from the, ma- from the male perspective, oh, that's ugly. That's ugly. I really, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not attractive. <laughs> one of the brothers was telling us at breakfast today, he said there's this one particular 
uh, female preacher on television in America. Name's not important. But she talks like a man. Intentionally. She makes her voice a little bit lower. Because if she talks too much like a female, she will not convey the authority. It's, It's ugly. It's just makes my skin crawl. (laughs) Even when we prophesy, Paul says, you know, the brethren and other groups, some of the brethren and some groups, misuse Paul's word where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Some groups say, oh, a woman shouldn't prophesy. Teaching is not prophesying. Prophesying is not teaching. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians 14 says, when a woman prophesies, she should what? Have her head covered. And if a man prophesies with his head covered, it's a shame. What does that mean? It means the way a woman prophesies and the way a man prophesies should actually be different. I I have seen some sisters, they don't know they're doing it, but they their prophecy sounds like a man. It does. That means they're prophesying without their head being covered. Don't ask me how a woman should prophesy. I'm not a woman. I don't know. But ask the Lord, what's the proper way for me as a sister to prophesy? He, and, he, and there is a proper way. To live an independent life is to live by the tree of knowledge. But to live a dependent life is to live by the tree of life. Amen. That's to eat the Lord. Not only do the worldly people live an independent life, but many Christians also live a life independent of God. For this reason, the vast majority of Christians, this is a strong statement, but we have to take it in context of this message. The vast majority of Christians have been useless to God. Useless for what? Useless for the building up of his dwelling place and fighting for his interests on the earth. We can never graduate from eating, drinking, and breathing the Lord. That's the way we can be useful to God for his purpose. We eat him, we drink him, we breathe him. I'm glad that the application is something that every one of us can do. Everyone knows how to do these things. But, you know, on the one hand, we know how to do them. On the other hand, I would say we could improve, especially in the matter of eating. Uh, I'm just going to come back. Do you say, sister, do you say your name Tarama? Tarama. Tarama. What Tarama shared is that she learned something. She learned something in her eating of the word of God. That's how it should be. Our eating of the Lord in the word, it should advance. It shouldn't be the same as it was before. We should have a deeper, richer, 
more intimate contact with him in the word today than we had before. So I'll share with you what I shared at the camp last weekend with the young people. Use the word of God as a means to have an interaction with the person who is the word of God. Consider the word of God, his speaking to you personally. And consider your prayer, your response to the words that he speaks to you. So, he says, set your mind on the things which are above. Take it as his personal speaking to you. Lord, oh Lord, I spend way too much time thinking about the things on the earth. Respond. He spoke a word to you. Respond to that. Oh Lord, the earthly things, they're occupying me all all the time. Right now, Lord, I look away. I look away from the earth. I look away from myself. I look away from my problems. I look away to you, Lord. That's a very good response to his word when he says, seek the things which are above. Use the word of God to interact with him, to have a conversation with him as a living person. That's to eat the Lord. That's to muse on him. That's to advance in our eating of the Lord. So, yeah, on the one hand, we all know how to do it. I would say, you know, even according to the type in the Old Testament, there's different stages of eating. In the wilderness, you eat the manna. That's one stage. In the good land, you eat the produce of the good land. That's another stage. In the Holy of Holies, you eat the hidden manna in the golden pot. That's another stage. It means we should advance. We should advance. Number three, at the age of 40, Moses lived an independent male life. Acting independently of God, he exercised his natural life to smite an Egyptian. When we live in the natural life, we kill people all the time, left and right. There's bodies, there's corpses all around when we live in the natural life. Moses was then set aside by God for 40 years so that he could be trained to live a dependent life, a female life. From the age of, I said it wrong earlier, Moses was not 40 when he killed the Egyptian. He was 80. From the age of 80 until the age of 120, Moses lived a female life. When he... By the time came for him to confront Pharaoh, he's 120 years old. He's not doing that anymore in his natural life. He just says, Pharaoh, thus says Jehovah. It's not my word, it's Jehovah's word. Let my people go. They may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. When he confronted Pharaoh, he was a female depending on God. But then he had another failure. 
in Numbers chapter 20, when he struck the rock the second time, he was independent of God. You know that story in Numbers 20. Um, prior to Numbers chapter 20, the Lord had commanded Moses. The people were thirsty, and they were murmuring because of their thirst. The first time God told him, use your rod to smite the rock, and water will come out to water my people. That first time he did it, the, the rod of Moses signifies the righteous law of God. Christ was crucified on the cross according to the righteous law of God, and out of him flowed the living water along with his blood. Christ is only smitten once in God's economy. After that, he was never to strike the rock again. He was to speak to the rock. Today, the way we get the living water, we don't crucify Christ. We speak to Christ. Now we speak to the smitten rock, and he flows the living water to us. But Moses struck the rock a second time in anger. And he called the people rebels. They were not rebels. He was the rebel. They were just thirsty people. You know, most of the time when the saints behave poorly in the church life, they're thirsty. It's like your kids. When they misbehave, they're probably hungry. Or or is that just a dad thing to say? But I think it is. They're they're usually hungry or thirsty. And in the church life, it's that way. What what should Moses have done? He should have said, Lord, the people are murmuring because they're really thirsty. Flow yourself, Lord, as the living water into them. Instead of doing that, he smote the rock. He said, you rebels! Actually, he was the rebel. At that moment... He lived outside of dependence on God. And it cost him. That cost him the privilege of entering the good land. You know, yesterday I said, uh, quoting 1 John, if you see your brother sinning a sin not unto death, pray for him. And in your prayer you will give life to him. Then John goes on to say there is a sin, a sin that it is unto death. Don't ask for that because the Lord won't answer it. If you pray for Moses to enter the good land, you're, you're wasting your breath. He committed a sin that was unto death. Moses did not consider himself as the leader of Israel when the children... Of, now, here's another good point concerning Moses. When Israel actually did rebel against him, he, he said he did not consider himself the leader. When the children of Israel rebelled against him, he considered it rebellion against God, not rebellion against him. Why? Because in the universal headship, wherever you are, you rebel, you rebel against God. That's how God sees it. You say, I didn't rebel against God. I just said the elders are doing a a, a rotten job. God would say, you rebelled against me. That's what God would say. 
Moses simply went to the Lord. That's so wonderful. That's what the brothers need to do. Simply go to the Lord, present the problems to him. Lord, this is what the elders do every week in the elders meeting. Lord, this is your problem. This is your problem. All we are doing is bringing this to you. In this way, he honored the Lord as the head, as the unique male, and he lived a female life, a life of of dependence on God. It is the female life. Now, this is, we said, to be useful to God is two things, to build up God's dwelling place on the earth and to fight for God's interests on the earth. Listen, it is the female life that is useful to God in spiritual warfare, in fighting the kingdom of God on earth, fighting for the kingdom of God on earth. When Jacob was running away from Esau, he was afraid that Esau was going to kill him. He put the women and the children at the front. (laughs) It's the same principle. You know who God can use to fight? The people who don't fight in themselves. He can use women and children. That's no problem. But he can't use Jacob because Jacob fights in himself. If you are living an independent male life, you are useless as far as spiritual warfare is concerned. You know, he's had a whole conference on spiritual warfare. Isn't that something? You know, as we were preparing for that conference, I realized something because I had to study and, and consider and research. Do you know that in, in the entire body of the ministry, all of the printed ministry... There's not even one, not even one conference on spiritual warfare, not even one. Brother Nee never gave a conference, an entire conference, on spiritual warfare. Brother Lee never gave an entire conference on spiritual warfare, but we just had an entire conference on spiritual warfare. Don't you think that's somewhat significant? I do, because we all know spiritual warfare is the last stage. That's Ephesians 6. There's no Ephesians 7. That's the end of the story. And the Lord, in his feeling, must feel that this is the time that in his recovery, he could get the kind of people who could fight. He must feel so. Otherwise, why did he give us an entire conference on it? Now we know the secret. Whenever God's people live a female life, He is able to accomplish his purpose through them. Okay, let's all read Roman numeral four together, the bold one. Very good. Let's pray for a minute and then we'll have some prophesying. As females, prophesying. <laughs> 